Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the mysterious death of Cindy James. The body of the blonde woman was clothed in brown slacks, a pink blouse and shoes. June 8th, 1989, Richmond, a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia. The evening news carries a report that has become all too common. The discovery of a dead body, in this case, lying in the yard of an abandoned house. The hands were behind her back, strapped to her feet, tied to her feet with a rope or a cord. The dead woman was 44-year-old pediatric nurse Cindy James. She lived less than two miles from the spot where her body was found. So, Cynthia Elizabeth James Nee Hack, born June 12th of 1994 and died on June 2nd to June 8th of 1989, was a Canadian nurse who disappeared from Richmond, British Columbia on May 25th of 1989. She was found deceased approximately two weeks later in the yard of an abandoned house, hogtied and with a nylon stocking wrapped around her throat. An autopsy indicated that she had died of an overdose of morphine, diazepam and fluorazepam. James's death was notable as she had made numerous reports to authorities dating back to 1982, alleging that she had been a victim of various acts of stalking, harassment, vandalism, home invasions, and physical attacks perpetrated by an unknown assailant. James's death and prior allegations were subject of great dispute as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, were unable to find any evidence suggesting she had been an actual victim of a stalker, which I find difficult to believe. Furthermore, she had a documented medical history of depression and suicidal thoughts, leading authorities to suspect that she may have been fabricating the various attacks and other incidents herself, orchestrating them to appear as legitimate, culminating in an eventual staged suicide, a game which I don't believe. Over the nearly seven-year period James reported the incidents, the RCMP allocated an estimated $1 to $1.5 million in funds to investigate her claims, marking one of the longest and most costly police investigations in British Columbia history. Despite skepticism from authorities, James's family members publicly insisted that she had in fact been preyed upon and eventually murdered. I agree with that. A coroner's inquest was held in the spring of 1990, which included testimony from more than 80 witnesses. The inquest ultimately resulted in the conclusion that James had died of an unknown event. James's death received international media coverage and was the subject of an Unsolved Mysteries segment in 1991. Furthermore, two different books were published in 1991 chronicling her life and death, Who Killed Cindy James by British journalist Ian Mulgrew, and The Deaths of Cindy James by Neil Hall, a Canadian crime reporter who had extensively covered James's case for the Vancouver Sun. Case, one and a half million dollars it's been estimated police spent 
investigating Cindy James' complaints, more than 100 incidents. And they could never find a suspect. They could never find a, a they could never, no, there was no sighting of a suspect. There was never a fingerprint from a suspect. There was no independent corroboration. Cindy saw this person, or sometimes she said there was two, sometimes three people going on year after year after year. In 2021, a podcast on James' death by unknown event, narrated by Pamela Adlon, was released by Audible. Now we're going to get into the background of this case. Cynthia Elizabeth Hack was born in Oliver, British Columbia, Canada on June 12th of 1944 to Matilda Tilly, a homemaker, and Otto Hack, an English teacher and former colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Both of her parents were of Russian descent. She was one of six children with three older brothers and two younger sisters. Cindy spent part of her teenage years in Ottawa due to her father's involvement in the Air Force and attended high school there. She recorded in her private diaries that her childhood had been marked by her father's strictness, which included corporal punishment. In adulthood, Cindy pursued a nursing career in Vancouver and enrolled in nursing school in 1962. During this period, her father had re-enlisted with the Air Force and relocated the family to France, where she visited them during holidays. During this time, in letters to her family, Cindy occasionally referred to an unnamed intern she had met during her studies. She claimed that the two had at one point been engaged and that after finding he had terminal cancer, the man committed suicide while the couple were on a skiing trip. None of her parents or siblings, however, ever met the man and Cindy did not name him. In the summer of 1965, Cindy met Roy Markpeace, a South African psychiatrist 18 years her senior. The two married on December 9th of 1966, the same year she graduated from nursing school with a BSN. Cindy's parents were skeptical of the marriage due to the couple's age difference and her father felt that Makepeace had taken advantage of Cindy's naivety and gullibility. Her family testified that the couple's marriage was troubled, that the two were at times emotionally distant. Though Cindy later made accusations of spousal abuse, Makepeace asserted he only slapped her twice over the course of their marriage. Though licensed as a psychiatrist in his home country of South Africa, interestingly enough, Makepeace failed twice to obtain his medical license in Canada and instead accepted a job as an assistant professor in the Facility of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Now, I find it very interesting that even though you were a licensed psychiatrist in South Africa, you failed twice to get your medical license in Canada. Now, I don't know what the rules are surrounding getting a medical license in Canada, but I'm assuming that if you fail it twice, that kind of leads me to believe that he obviously didn't have the qualifications that were needed in Canada. And and like I said, it very well could be that what the rules that are in one country are not the same in another. For example, he may have been a licensed psychiatrist in his home country, but maybe the rules and the testing and the license application and qualifications needed to do that and get the license were different in South Africa than they were in Canada. Because whereas one country might be a little bit more lenient, like if you can prove to us that you can do the job, we'll give you a license. Whereas another country might be like, no, you have to show all these qualifications, all this paperwork, plus have references and witnesses. That very well could have been what happened with him. But the fact that he failed twice kind of raises alarm bells to me because normally if you fail once, it's like, okay, you made a mistake. You go there again, you try again. But then if you fail twice and you're an actual licensed psychiatrist and this is what you wanted to do, it does kind of raise alarm bells that he failed not once but twice. But then again, like I said, it very well could be that he may have 
been qualified in his country but been underqualified in Canada. As I say, I don't know the rules around how to become a licensed psychiatrist or obtain your medical license in Canada. If somebody would like to tell me in the comments and maybe leave a comment and explain to me the differences of the rules between South Africa and Canada, I would greatly appreciate that. But to me, it is a little bit suspect to me that he couldn't get the license and he failed twice to obtain it. It's kind of a little bit suspect. Cindy worked as a pediatric nurse at Vancouver General Hospital where her husband had also one time been employed from 1966 to 1975. In 1973, Makepeace took a job as Director of Health Services at BC Hydro. In April 1975, Cindy was hired as a team coordinator at Vancouver's Blenheim House, a facility caring for children with behavioural disorders. She worked at Blenheim House for approximately 12 years and was noted by her colleagues for her competence and professionalism. Now we get into the allegations of harassment. Now, spanning nearly a seven-year period between 1982 and 1989, Cindy reported approximately 90 incidents of criminal activity to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. Her claims included alleged acts of stalking, vandalism, arson, harassment, intimidation, home invasions, and physical assaults perpetrated by an unknown person or persons. So we're going to get into the 1982 incidents. The incidents began in September of 1982, four months after Cindy separated from Makepeace. In late September, she told friends and family members she suspected that a prowler had been lurking around her home. A series of obscene phone calls soon followed, the first of which was received on October 7th of 1982. Cindy's mother relayed that though she was reluctant to discuss her experiences, she indicated that the phone calls consisted of an individual speaking in different voices, and that on some occasions there was mere silence on the other end of the phone. Cindy described some of the calls as sexual and violent in nature. She said it was just a voice. Sometimes it would change the sound and sometimes it was just whispering. Sometimes it was just nothing, just silence. As far as we know, she did not recognize the voice. Of so. course, I think we should add a qualifier there that she was very, very reluctant to talk about this right to the end. And our feeling was that she was withholding something extremely vital. On October 11th, Cindy received a phone call consisting of loud breathing noises and the following day received another call in a menacing whisper which said, and I quote, I'll get you one night, Cindy, end quote. She reported the obscene phone calls to the RCMP who visited her home and suggested she keep a list of each call and its contents as well as get an unlisted number. Shortly after the officer left, Cindy received a call in which an apparent male voice said, quote, you fucking bitch, I'll get you, end quote. The next day, on the afternoon of October 13th, the caller threatened her, quote, So you think calling the police will keep you safe? You wait. I've got my zipper open. I'm talking to my throbbing, end quote, before she abruptly ended the call. Two days later, Cindy reported to the RCMP that she had heard someone lurking outside her home and awoken in the morning to find her port light smashed. On October 15th, she reported to police that someone had thrown a rock through one of her windows and entered her house, though nothing else had been disturbed. Four days later, on October 19th, she reported that someone had entered her home and slashed a pillow on her bed. Patrick McBride, a constable with the Vancouver RCMP, suggested the culprit was her estranged husband, Makepeace, who denied involvement. Cindy herself made conflicting statements regarding Makepeace, telling authorities she did not think he was capable of tormenting her, but also divulged to friends and co-workers that he was violently abusive during their marriage. On October 20th, two tenants who rented the basement of Cindy's home reported to police that they'd heard strange noises upstairs on the main floor after she left for work. A next-door neighbour informed McBride 
McBride that she had witnessed a man standing outside the house on at least three different occasions and one time entering the gate of the front yard. The neighbour insisted the man did not resemble Makepeace. Cindy concurrently began a relationship with McBride, which lasted approximately one year. McBride, who had recently separated from his wife, moved into Cindy's house on October 31st of 1982. She told friends that McBride had offered to stay for approximately two weeks, helping surveil in the event that the perpetrator arrived at her home. Several days after McBride moved in, he found Makepeace sitting in his car in an alley behind the house. When questioned, Makepeace claimed he was trying to catch Cindy's alleged intruder in the act, and subsequently left after McBride. McBride informed him he had moved in. In mid-November, McBride stated that he himself received a mysterious phone call at the home while Cindy was present and that the caller spoke no words. McBride initially suspected the call may have been made from an airport terminal as he could hear a woman's voice in the background over a public address system. Though it was eventually traced to an exchange in the Vancouver suburb of Richmond, Later in November, Cindy found a note pinned to her car windshield which featured a picture of a corpse lying under a medical sheet. On November 28th, McBride observed that the phone lines outside the house had been cut in five different places. Cindy, who remained cordial and friendly with Makepeace despite their breakup, at times invited him to a home with McBride present as both men had a common shared fascination with finding her alleged harasser and would often discuss the case together. McBride moved out of Cindy's home on December 1st of 1985, though the two continued to casually date, frequently having dinners together in Vancouver and Bellingham, Washington, United States. The week of Christmas 1982, Cindy found a note outside her house reading, and I quote, Merry Christmas, end quote, with a photo of a woman with her throat slashed, stained with red ink. Now we come to the events of 1983 to 1984. On the night of January 27th, 1983, Angers Woodcock, a friend and co-worker from Blenheim House, visited Cindy's house and found her lying unconscious in her backyard with a nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. Upon regaining consciousness, Cindy told Woodcock that she had been attacked from behind by an assailant while walking to her exterior garage and that the individual brought her into the garage where another male subject waited and the two strangled her. She alleged that the men inserted a knife into her vagina and threatened to kill her younger sister, Melanie, if she reported the attack to authorities. Cindy told me that uh, after she was attacked, the knife was held at her throat and she was told that if you talk, your sister will be next and then your mother. So just keep quiet, don't tell anything. After one attack, Royal Canadian Mounted Police tape recorded their questioning of Cindy. This is an actual excerpt from that interview. I would talk with her and I would say, Cindy, please tell me what's going on. And she'd say, I can't, Mother, I can't. And I'd say, why not? Because she says, I'm afraid for you. Doctors who examined Cindy after the alleged attack, however, found no concrete evidence of sexual assault, though Detective David Boyer-Smith remained ambivalent about her claim. At police request, Cindy was asked to see a psychiatrist, but declined as she feared doing so would stigmatise her. Instead, she agreed to visit a general practitioner with experience in counselling. Cindy relocated from her residence to her house in West Vancouver on February 1st of 1983. Less than a week later, she received a threatening letter reading, Run, rabbit, run. I'll show you how fucking good I am. Soon. Bang, bang. You're dead. End quote. 
After a rash of further obscene calls, Cindy relocated again to another house in April of 1983. Makepeace, who had made continued attempts to reconcile with his wife, showered her with several lavish gifts in the summer of 1983 and paid her airfare to Indonesia so she could visit her brother Roger, who was stationed there. Several weeks after returning from the trip, Cindy found another note on August 22nd, which read, and I quote, Welcome back. Death, blood, hate, etc. End quote. Cindy painted her car a different colour in an attempt to conceal her identity and hired a private investigator, Ozzy Caban, to help investigate her alleged stalker. She continued to pay for Caban's services over the following six years. Caban noted that Cindy went to extensive lengths to protect herself, such as wearing a portable panic button and keeping oil and pepper spray with her at all times. Between October and November of 1983, Cindy discovered the remains of three strangled cats in her garden, each bound with rope. In her private diary, she accused Makepeace of destroying the garden in her backyard. She continued to receive numerous phone calls at home and at work, some of which were answered by her co-workers at Blenheim House, who told authorities the caller did not speak. On January 30th of 1984, Caban overheard strange noises on a two-way radio he'd given Cindy, prompting him to visit her home. Upon arrival, he found her lying unconscious on her living room floor with a paring knife stabbed through her hand and a note pinned through with the knife. The note, which was crafted with letters cut and pasted from a magazine, read, and I quote, and I do apologise for this, Now you must die, cunt, end quote. I went around the house and uh, the house was locked. I was able to look into the house through a window and I found Cindy lying there. 101 to base, get me the police. Cindy, Cindy, can you hear me? I Cindy. took a look at her and I thought she was dead. There was a note that was pinned with a paring knife through her hand. I went to the telephone, called 911. Within about two minutes, the medical people arrived and uh, she revived briefly and then they took her to the hospital when i interviewed cindy she told me that she noticed a man coming through the gate uh, the next thing she remembers is being hit on the side of the head with a piece of wood or something of that nature uh, she then remembered being held down on the floor and she remembered a needle going into her arm. Cindy was taken to a local hospital and in an interview with Caban stated that the last thing she remembered before being found was witnessing a man coming through the gate to her property before he assaulted her and bludgeoned her over the head with a blunt object. She stated that once incapacitated, she recalled her attacker inserting a hypodermic needle into her arm. Doctors located a needle mark in her right arm but found no traces of any drugs in her system. Cindy then took a polygraph test after the incident, which purportedly showed no deception. However, the officer who conducted the test later stated that the results, by his estimation, proved inconclusive. She wouldn't tell him the entire story. She would be evasive. Uh, she would uh, withhold information. And she simply would not act as a normal uh, victim would act. And I can see where... Uh, a, a police officer would have a tremendous amount of problem in believing her story. Constable Keo Ikomo, who reported to Cindy's residence the night of the alleged attack, stated that he observed blood smeared in circular patterns on the kitchen floor as though someone had attempted to clean evidence. 
In February of 1984, detectives began increasingly questioning Makepeace as Cindy had confided that she felt he was the one tormenting her. In, in, in interviews, Makepeace theorised that Cindy's attackers were part of the Mafia and connected to her employment at Blenheim House, which often treated children who were wards of this court. In March of 1984, Cindy's father Otto met with Makepeace at a donut shop in Vancouver wearing a police wiretap and told Makepeace to cease contact with his daughter. After the meeting, Makepeace wrote and sent a six-page letter to Otto outlining his theory that he believed the Mafia was after Cindy and urged Otto to pressure police to investigate this angle. Over the summer of 1984, Cindy's reported incidents of harassment reached a crescendo in intensity. On June 18th, she phoned Caban in a panic and he rushed to her home to find her cowering in the garden, claiming someone had infiltrated the house. Caban then discovered her dog Heidi cowering in the basement along with a note reading, Happy Birthday alongside sexually explicit photos. Heidi had been physically abused and Caban noted that the rope bound around her appeared to be the same discovered on the dead cat Cindy had found the previous autumn. On a windowsill in the basement, a cigarette butt was discovered which did not match the brand Cindy was known to smoke. Based on the physical abuse Heidi had endured, Caban concluded that Cindy could not have been the perpetrator stating, and I quote, she'd never have done that if she was the Cindy I knew, end quote. Over the following several weeks, further calls were received, one of which Caban answered at Cindy's home while she was at work, and a dead cat was found lying in the stairwell of her house. On July 1st, Cindy told Caban two men had arrived at her front door posing as police officers, but fled when she radioed Caban. Cindy subsequently reported a series of further obscene calls, one of which consisted of the caller saying, and I quote, You're dead, bitch. It's gonna feel good. End quote. A co-worker of Cindy at Blenheim House also received a call which said, and I quote, get rid of the big pig, end quote. On July 9th of 1984, Cindy's mother Tilly spent the night at her home. In the middle of the night, Tilly awoke to Heidi barking and found Cindy checking the windows and doors on the main floor of the house. Moments later, they both heard the doorbell ring and discovered a window near the front porch cracked in several areas. Two weeks later, on July 23rd, Cindy claimed she was attacked by an assailant in nearby Dunbar Park walking her dog at approximately 8.30pm. By her recollection, she was assailed by a bearded man driving a green van with a female passenger. Several hours later at around midnight, she was found in a day state attempting to enter the home of a neighbor and had a dark gray nylon stocking around her neck. Her dog Heidi was found by Caban wandering in the area of the park. She was taken to the nearby University of British Columbia Health and Sciences Centre where doctors observed two puncture marks in her right arm. While Cindy was being treated, a hospital receptionist told authorities a man with an accent had called the front desk inquiring about the hospital's security policies. When police played audio of Makepeace's voice, the receptionist felt there was a strong possibility it was the same person. That caller has never been identified. In October of 1984, while under the care of a hypnotherapist, Cindy recounted a repressed memory of witnessing a double murder, but did not divulge at that time further details. Now here's the part of this case that no one's ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. Supposedly the story goes that Cindy and Roy went to, oh, I'm going to butcher this name, Gabriola Island for their honeymoon where Roy's friend and controversial Dr. James Tyhurst, who was found guilty of some heinous crimes against some of his patients, lived and worked. 
Some people have said that Cindy hinted or told them that she had witnessed something bad happen with Dr. James Tyhurst on the island and that it was probable that her own husband Roy was involved in this abuse of patients as well. She believed that Dr. James Tyhurst and or her husband had gotten one of the patients to stalk her until she broke down psychologically to keep her silent about what she saw. Now, as I understand it, Cindy told police that she had witnessed her ex-husband murder a man and a woman, then dismember their bodies with an axe while the couple were vacationing in July of 1981. According to Cindy, Makepeace smeared blood from one of the victims several limbs across her face during the dismemberment, but no one believed her. Partly, I think, was because it was later discovered that Cindy's sister Melanie was with her on this vacation and had no recollection of anything sinister occurring. Also of note is that the authorities further investigated Cindy's claims regarding the alleged dismemberments committed by Makepeace and found no evidence of any missing or murdered person cases in the Gulf Islands at that, that time. Makepeace's attorney stated that the accusation led authorities on a wild goose chase searching for the cabin location of the alleged murders, which they were unable to find, and to my knowledge, the, the cabin where these alleged murders and dismemberment took place has never been located or found. According to a book written by, and I'm going to butcher this name, H. Allbarrel, Dr. James Tyhurst, along with other psychiatrists, work with the CIA on some projects called Project Artichoke and MK Ultra, having to do with hypnosis and behavior control. Many years after the honeymoon, it was discovered that this psychiatrist, Dr. James Tyhurst, had been mentally tormenting some of his patients for years, sexually and physically abusing them. They were under his complete control and did everything he told them to do. I mean, this guy is like something out of a really bad nightmare. He also had a very interesting history, and I don't mean a very nice one either. Dr. James Tyhurst once wielded a fair degree of power as the head of the UBC Psychiatry Department. He was also a mean man with a whip, regularly lashing a trio of half-naked patients, tormented women who had put their trust in his healing powers. When patient Gil Gorman signed on as a slave during therapy sessions with one of British Columbia's most prominent psychiatrists, she had no idea what lay in store. Gorman was suffering from, as I understand it, an eating disorder and had a vague thoughts of suicide when she first went to see Tyhurst in September of 1979 as she began her second year of university. For the next eight years, she saw Tyhurst, the University of BC's head of psychiatry from 1958 to 1970 and other psychiatrists for treatment of her borderline personality disorder. The disorder made her hunger for relationships which were doomed to fail because of the high expectations she put on others. At least several times a month for more than four years, Miss Gorman participated in a formal master-slave relationship with Dr. James Tyhurst involving frequent whipping of her naked back and bowing down to kiss his hands and feet. The nightmare therapy ended in 1989. The notorious case, which also involved other patients' allegations of sexual misconduct by Dr. Tyhurst, has been before the court for 12 years, including two sensational criminal trials. Tyhurst twice stood trial in criminal court. One jury found him guilty of the sexual and physical assault of Gorman and another woman when four former patients testified. Tyhurst won a new trial and was found not guilty in 1992 by another jury when only two patients testified. Miss Gorman launched her civil suit against Dr. Tyhurst in 1990. Each time the case came to court, the fundamental issue was the credibility of evidence given by former psychiatric patients with all of their medical troubles against that of a respected doctor who denied every one of their allegations. 
In her lawsuit, Ms. Gorman charged that she was ordered to strip naked at least once and to strip to her waist on numerous occasions while Dr. Tyhurst whipped her. She was also required to kneel, crawl, to serve him, call him master, and kiss his hands and feet. A letter signed by Ms. Gorman and found in Dr. Tyhurst's files in a police raid said that she was, and I quote, willing to commit myself to being a slave, which includes total obedience, accountability, a submissive attitude, and taking punishment quietly. I realize I need to be made to submit to orders so that I don't avoid or procrastinate commitment. Until I learn more self-discipline, I need to have external discipline." End quote. Similar contracts were signed by the other two former patients who testified during the trial. Gorman and one of the other two women testified they suspect Tyhurst was masturbating while he whipped them, though they never saw any proof of it. Quote, While I'm unable to conclude the acts of whipping were accompanied by the defendant masturbating, I have no difficulty in concluding his entire course of conduct and the bizarre therapy in which he engaged was for his own sexual gratification. End quote, wrote Judge Vickers. The judge doubted Tyhurst's denial of any significance to the two letters entered in evidence which Gorman said were master-slave contracts. Tyhurst should have been alarmed at their contents, he said. Instead, the psychiatrist testified that patients write all sorts of things and dismissed them as trash. Tyhurst mistreated Gorman so badly the judge found that he ruined her ability to trust others, including therapists and men in general. The nightmare of this therapy will live on for the rest of her life, wrote the judge. No similar case has been cited to me where the abuse of a care provider in a position of trust has been so appalling. Now, during or after Cindy's divorce, she accused Roy of murder, but the police didn't take her seriously and chalked it up to mental illness. That would be easy to believe, if not for the fact that the psychiatrist friend of Roy's was presumed guilty of years-long sadistic behaviour of some of his patients on that island, which was the very thing she accused him and Roy of doing years prior. Now we get into the 1985-86 incidents. During the July 1984 attack, Cindy continued to receive anonymous phone calls, but none were long enough to be adequately traced by police, and police surveillance of her home to prove unfruitful. In late June of 1985, Cindy was involuntarily committed to the psychiatric unit at Vancouver's Lionsgate Hospital after having attempted suicide by overdosing on prescription drugs, though she later said that she had not intended to kill herself. On July 2nd, she agreed to allow police to wiretap a phone conversation with Makepeace, during which she accused him of being the source of her problems and confronted him about the memory she recounted under hypnosis of him murdering two people. During the conversation, Makepeace denied the incidents, deeming Cindy insane and involved in an enormous revenge fantasy. Following their recorded call, the RCMP employed officers to maintain 24-hour surveillance of Cindy, Makepeace and two other unnamed suspects over a week-long period. The surveillance was ultimately terminated after nothing unusual was observed. Cindy received a package at her home in early July containing a charcoal-coloured nylon stocking along with a note reading, and I quote, blood flowing freely, end quote. Several weeks later, on July 27th, she found a cosmetics container on her front porch containing putrefied raw meat from a small animal. On August 5th, Cindy called into the police station, reporting a fire in her home. Authorities found what appeared to be pieces of burnt newspaper scattered in the room. Another fire was reported by Cindy the following day. Now, on August 21st, a fire broke out in the basement bathroom of Cindy's home at approximately 4.45am. When firefighters and police arrived at the residence, they observed Cindy in a heated discussion with private investigator Caban, explaining that she had taken her dog out for a walk at approximately 3.15am and returned home to discover the blaze. The window of the bathroom was found partially ajar by authorities, but the soot and dust on the windowsill showed no markings that an intruder had entered or exited through it. Charred remnants of a newspaper were discovered 
in the bathroom. A detective who investigated the fire later testified that he believed Cindy had started the blaze herself. Now I'm going to read a quote by Dr. Anthony Marcus, a psychologist who interviewed James in 1985. Quote, This woman was under siege from whatever source, inside or out, she was living in a nightmare. End quote. In the fall of 1985, Dr. Anthony Marcus, whose quote I just read, a psychologist, was requested by Carol Halliday of the RCMP to conduct interviews with Cindy and examine the various case files. Halliday, who'd become involved with the case after reporting with a colleague at the August 21st fire incident, felt Cindy was lying and orchestrating her attacks and that the various male officers who investigated them for her had been conned by the histronics of a pretty woman. Based on his interviews and analysis of police records, Marcus offered his professional opinion opinion that Cindy may have been suffering from disassociative identity disorder stemming from a traumatic childhood incident, though he did not question Cindy about her early life during their interviews. On December 1st, Cindy relocated to a new home in Richmond. Ten days later, on December 11th at approximately 6pm, she was found by motorists semi-conscious in a ditch approximately 6 kilometres or 3.7 miles from her home near the University of British Columbia campus. She was wearing men's work boots and a single glove and again, a nylon stocking was tightly wrapped around her neck. Due to frigid temperatures, Cindy was suffering from hypothermia and was rushed to a local hospital where it was suspected she had been injected with some sort of tranquilizer. She also exhibited bruising and various cuts on her body. When interviewed in the hospital, Cindy claimed to have no memory of what occurred or how she'd gotten to the location where she'd been found. Her last memory was going to have lunch during her workday after which she'd stopped at a local pharmacy. Disconsolidated over the feeling that police did not believe her, she flew to visit her brother Roger in West Germany for Christmas. In early 1986, Cindy formally changed her last name from Makepeace, the surname of her ex-husband, to James, hoping to further conceal her identity. To help assuage her fears, her friend Angus Woodcock and her husband Tom sometimes spent nights at Cindy's home. On April 16th, the couple were awoken by Cindy, who stated she had heard a commotion in the house. Upon investigating, they found another fire had been started in the basement. When they attempted to phone the fire department, they found the phone was dead. Tom fled across the street to a neighbor's residence to call police, and when exiting the house, claimed to have witnessed a man standing on the street outside the residence. Tom went to alert the neighbors. He saw a man at the curb and asked the man to call the fire department. Instead, he simply ran off down the street. The police suspected that Cindy had staged the incident. They found no dust or fingerprints disturbed on the outside of the windowsill. The fire was set inside the house, and in order to set it, it was thought the perpetrator would have needed to climb through a specific window. It was also considered odd that Cindy still freely walked her dog during the attacks. Cindy came running to the door and said, Tom, I heard a noise downstairs, and Tom said, I heard it too. It was like a loud thump. Agnes and Tom went downstairs with Cindy. The basement was in flames. Cindy asked me to call the fire department, so I ran to the phone, and the phone was dead. So Tom went outside and called the neighbor and asked if he would call the fire department. And when he went out, there was a man standing on the curb, and Tom asked him, and he ran away down the street. The police suspected once again that Cindy had staged the incident. Further questions? Thank you. There was no dust or fingerprints disturbed on the outside of the windowsill, but somebody set the fires from inside the home and we had to climb through that window. Now that should have been one sign that people should have realized. Also, she said she was out walking her dog late at night that night. Now, if somebody was attacked, why would they go out alone walking their dog at three o'clock in the morning? Does that make sense? 
Cindy stayed with the Woodcocks for several days following the fire, where they noted that she refused to eat and made comments that her life was no longer worth living. Ellen Connolly, a psychiatrist who'd been treating Cindy since January of 1983, met with her and stated that though he had long believed her allegations of harassment, he feared she was suicidal. Connolly had her committed to the psychiatric ward of St. Paul's Hospital for two weeks, where it was observed that she was suffering from anorexia and depression. She was subsequently transferred to Riverview Hospital, where a comprehensive psychological examination was conducted. Conducted. The report noted, and I quote, This 41-year-old woman on initial assessment was very resistant. She would only answer in one-word responses. She refused to discuss a number of topics and would give no eye contact. On the second date, her mood was considerably elevated. She had completed the other tests herself and was willing to talk. She seemed apprehensive as to how the test could be used. She maintained good eye contact except when discussing the terrorizing incidents. She then would look down or cover her eyes and speak haltingly. She expressed upset and cried a great deal when relating these incidents. Patient kept asking if her responses to the items indicated she was crazy. Her IQ is well above average. This type of individual can be characterized as negativistic and conforming. They have unpredictable moods, pessimism, sullenness, validating with social agreement and friendliness. They tend to anticipate and precipitate disappointments through their obstructive and negative behavior. This type of person tends to be vulnerable to fears. End quote. After a 10-week hospital stay, Cindy was released. According to her father, she told him she had been withholding information regarding her alleged attacks, stating that she knew the identity of the, of the assailant, but refused to name him. She told me for the first time she was convinced who the perpetrator was, and in her own words, if the police can't solve this, I'll solve it for them. She said, when it's all over, I'll explain everything to you, but I can't tell you now. Now we get into the incidents of 1987 to 1989. In August of 1987, Cindy began working as a nurse at Richmond General Hospital. On August 28th, her home alarm was triggered after a back window was broken, and three days later, on August 31st, she reported to police that her front porch light bulbs had been loosened. The following week, she reported that someone had used a glass cutter to create a hole in the basement door window. In February of 1988, Cindy indicated that someone had shattered a window to her home after securing it with electrical tape. On October 11th of 1988, Makepeace received two strange voice messages on his answering machine. One of the messages contained a hoarse voice speaking the phrase, and I quote, Cindy, dead meat, soon, end quote. while the other stated, and I quote, more smack, more downers, another grand after we waste the cunt, no more deal, end quote. He gave the answering machine tapes to his attorney as he distrusted the Vancouver police, whom he felt might target him as a suspect. On October 26th, she came home from work and was attacked in a carport. She was later found unconscious in her car, nude from the waist down. A nylon stocking was tied around her neck and her arms and legs were hogtied with a second one. Duct tape was found over her mouth and in an attempt to keep her from breathing. She went into a coma but survived. Around this time, the RCMP hired mountain climber and knot expert Robert Ch to analyze the knots on the nylon stockings she frequently had been found bound with. At the time, Chinzel concluded that it was highly unlikely that Cindy would have been able to secure such knots herself, which I tend to agree with. 
In January of 1989, Richard Johnson, a life insurance salesman from whom Cindy had purchased a policy, moved into the basement unit of her residence. She offered him the rental on the basis that she would feel more safe with someone else living with her. On April 8th, the security guard at Richmond General Hospital, where Cindy was employed, discovered a note on the premises crafted with cut and pasted letters which read, and I quote, Soon, Cindy! End quote. The phrase sleep well was also found written in the dew on her windshield. Following a reported break-in at her home on April 29th, the RCMP used scent hounds in an attempt to trace the alleged intruder, but the dogs found no trail. On May 10th of 1989, scent hounds were utilised again following another alleged break-in and were able to track the scent of an unknown individual that led over the backyard fence of Cindy's home. Now we come to the RCMP conclusions. Over the course of nearly seven years that Cindy reported the various incidents, the RCMP spent an estimated Canadian $1 to $1.5 million of resources investigating her claims, but no evidence could be located to corroborate them. Because of this, authorities suspected that Cindy was inventing the incidents herself and staging them to appear as though she were the victim of a violent stalker. Cindy expressed frustration with the police department, aside from one detective, Jerry Anderson, in a complaint she filed against the RCMP for her perceived dismissal by several officers, she positively singled out Anderson, quote, for his patient's unfailing professional conduct and his exemplary investigation of this case. He is the only member of the RCMP I feel I can trust and be comfortable with, end quote. Now we get into her disappearance. At approximately 4pm on May 25th of 1989, Cindy picked up her paycheck from Richmond General Hospital. There, she spoke with a co-worker who reported that she seemed to be in good spirits and said Cindy informed her she had not experienced any suspicious activity at her home for at least two weeks. Cindy was last seen several hours later purchasing groceries at a Safeway supermarket and visiting a bank of Montreal at the Blundell Shopping Centre. A bank patron told police they had stood in line behind Cindy at the bank's ATM, where she deposited to a paycheck at approximately 7.59 p.m. That same day, Cindy had scheduled to have an infrared detection system installed in her home for security purposes and had planned for her friends Angus and Tom Woodcock to play bridge and spend that night. After not hearing from Cindy, the Woodcocks visited her home at approximately 10pm and found the house locked and Cindy's Chevrolet Cetacean absent. They briefly spoke with Johnston, who informed them she'd mentioned earlier that she was going to do some shopping. The Woodcocks drove past the Blundell Shopping Centre, which they knew Cindy to frequent, and found her car abandoned in the lot. They proceeded to drive to the Richmond RCMP station to report Cindy as a missing person. Though she'd only been missing for several hours, a patrol car was sent to investigate based on her extensive history with the police department. Upon examination of the vehicle, blood was located inside the car on the driver's side door as well as groceries and a wrapped birthday gift for a friend's young son. Contents from Cindy's wallets was found lying underneath the vehicle. A subsequent inspection of her home that night showed nothing had been disturbed. Police observed that the house was orderly and clean and filled with numerous well-tended house plants. The Canadian Coast Guard deployed searches of rivers in the area as well as the Gulf of Georgia in an attempt to locate the missing woman. Several days after Cindy's was reported missing, her tenant, Johnson, informed police he'd received a call at his office from a man claiming to be her father inquiring about her life insurance policy. Johnston's secretary informed the caller that he would need to visit the office as private insurance matters could not be relayed over the phone. When authorities questioned Cindy's father, interestingly enough, he denied ever making the phone call. 
Now we get into Cindy's death. On June 8th of 1989, Gordon Starchuk, a municipal paving worker, discovered Cindy's body in the backyard of an abandoned house at 8111 Blundell Road, Richmond. Her body was hogtied with rope in a fetal position and a black nylon stocking was bound tightly around her neck. Cindy's right leg lay beneath a bramble of blackberry bushes and a coat was found lying near her body. The property where her remains were found was situated along a busy street near an intersection which had frequent foot traffic from pedestrians. On the residence's exterior fuel tank, police found a graffito and orange spray paint reading, quote, some bitch died here. A line spray painted along the ground with the same orange paint ran from the fuel tank to the spot where her body lay, encircling it. Inside the abandoned home, another spray painted graffito reading, Devil, was found. Sheila Carlisle, a pathologist who examined Cindy's body at the scene, noted that her hands had been bound so tightly that one finger had scratched another down to the bone. A pinprick consistent with a hypodermic needle was located on the inner right elbow of the body. Based on insect and larva activity on the remains, forensic entomologist Gail Anderson concluded that the body had begun the decomposition process at the site where it was found as early as June 2nd of 1989. An autopsy determined that Cindy had died of multiple drug intoxication from substantial amounts of morphine, diazepam, and flurazepam. Her blood toxicology report showed that she had 10 times the lethal dose of morphine in her bloodstream. Based on an examination of her stomach contents, toxicologist Heather Din reported that Cindy had orally ingested approximately 20-30 milligram tablets of flurazepam, or up to 80 tablets of a higher dose, in addition to numerous tablets of diazepam a combination that itself was lethal. The method by which the morphine had been administered could not be determined, baffling the pharmacologist who analysed the toxicology report. Traces of morphine were found in Cindy's stomach, though Dr John McNeil stated that the amount could have resulted from intravenous injection of the drug. By McNeil's analysis, if Cindy had received the morphine via intravenous injection, she would have been rendered unconscious within mere minutes and would have died within several hours. It was ultimately concluded by authorities that the overdose had been so large that there was no reliable estimate of how long Cindy would have remained functional. Which is the most baffling thing about this case and leaves so many questions unanswered. For example, if the drugs would have rendered her unconscious in mere minutes, how did she ingest these drugs, tie herself up, and also tie the stocking so tightly around her neck that she could barely breathe? Why wasn't there any needle or drug vials found anywhere on the scene? I mean, if she took these drugs, there would be a needle or some type of vial nearby. None, to my knowledge, was ever found. The biggest question I have, though, is where would she have obtained these drugs in such large doses without leaving some kind of paper trail? I mean, the thing is, I know this was in 1989, and it was a lot easier to FUD reports back then and to change reports back then. I get that. But what I'm saying is, is that even though it would have been a lot more easy to get drugs back in the day, I mean, she took well over 20, 30 milligram tablets of flurazepam, and she took almost 10 times the lethal dose of morphine. That's a hell of a lot of morphine. That's not a sort of, oh, I want to just take a bit of morphine. That's like, I want to kill someone. This whole thing, I mean, to my knowledge, this line of inquiry was never investigated, but I'm telling you, she had so much fluorazepam, diazepam, and morphine in her system, it's like someone was out to kill her, for sure, no no doubt in my mind. There is no way she could have ingested all of that herself, tied herself up, and put the thing around her neck. As the top, you know, there was no way to tell how long Cindy could have remained functional, which I'll come back to in a minute. To me, she was murdered by person or persons unknown, regardless of what anyone says, based on these unanswered questions. 
The RCMP, however, suspected Cindy's cause of death was likely a suicide, which how the hell they could ever come to that conclusion, I don't know, or an accident, which is just even more absurd. But the reason they said this was it was based on the assumption that she had fabricated her numerous prior claims of assaults and stalking, and this was quickly reported by several local tabloid news outlets. Her personal private investigator, Caban, visited the morgue to examine her body on June 10th and observed that her remains exhibited lividity, the settling of blood post-mortem, visible on the skin on the left side of her body. Because her body had been found lying on its right side, Caban felt that she may have died elsewhere and that her body was relocated to the site where it was ultimately discovered. A memorial service was held for Cindy on June 14th of 1989, two days after what would have been her 45th birthday. Police surveilled the memorial service using hidden cameras, capturing the faces and license plates of all who attended. Her ex-husband, Makepeace, however, was not in attendance, which I find really strange. In the summer of 1989, the abandoned house where Cindy's body was discovered was demolished. Now we get into the coroner's inquest. An extensive inquest into Cindy's death was undertaken in the spring of 1990 in Burnaby, which consisted of five jurors and featured testimony from over 80 witnesses. The inquest was originally scheduled to run three weeks, but upon it progressing much slower than expected, an additional 21 days were added. The inquest, which totaled 40 days, was the longest and most expensive in British Columbia at that time. Among the evidence presented were the two recorded phone messages Makepeace had received on his answering machine. During his testimony on the stand, Makepeace made various accusations against Cindy's family, alleging that her father had physically abused her throughout her childhood and that one of her brothers had molested her. He also accused the police of attempting to frame him. It was also revealed that shortly after her death, Cindy's parents uncovered a hoard of various medications in her home, including sedatives and antipsychotic drugs, prescribed by her psychiatrist, which they disposed of by flushing down the toilet. Her younger sister Melanie also found a glass cutter in Cindy's purse along with a medical syringe kit, a urinary catheter and saline solution in her bedroom. Jurors were presented with graphic footage of Cindy's decomposing corpse as it was discovered at the scene, as well as numerous accounts detailing her mental state leading up to her death. Testimony was provided from several psychiatrists and psychologists, including those who had personally treated Cindy over the years. Dr. Paul Tamerson testified that he believed she suffered from hysterical personality disorder, while Dr. Wesley Friesen, a longtime psychiatrist of Cindy's, stated he suspected she had borderline personality disorder with elements of post-traumatic stress disorder. By Friesman's account, Cindy possessed a tremendous amount of rage toward her father, and based on their numerous sessions, Friesman believed there was a strong likelihood that her father sexually abused her when she was a child, though she never indicated this to be the case, and there's no evidence that he ever did. Attempts to discern whether or not Cindy could have bound herself in the state she was discovered were also focused on during the inquest using the same length of nylon found binding her body. Not expert Robert Chinzel demonstrated in court how she could have bound herself within a three minute time frame before the effects of the narcotics in her system would have taken effect, which I don't believe at all. I mean, we don't know that she had three minutes. We don't know that she had three seconds. We don't know. So basically this, this not expert coming in and saying, oh, well, I reckon that she could have done it and this is how she did it. You can't say that because we don't know that that, it, that she would have been able to have that long of a time. Even the medical toxicologist couldn't say with certainty how long she would have had. It could have been one minute. It could have been three minutes. It could have been five minutes. We don't know how long she had to be able to take these drugs, tie herself up. Like, we, we just don't know that. Put it this way. If the medical pathologist and the medical toxicologist couldn't figure out how long she would have, could not estimate how long she had, how are you going to have a, a not 
expert coming in and saying, well, within three minutes, she could have bound herself up and done it this way. The thing is, you're basing that off the fact that we think she had three minutes. We don't know that she had three minutes. If the medical experts can't say for certainty how long she would have had before the drugs kicked in and knocked her out and made her non-functional, how can you possibly say that, all oh, she had three minutes and she could tie herself up in three minutes? She could have been conked out in one. The other thing everyone seems to be forgetting, or the other fact I like to point out too, is everybody's metabolism is different. So drugs are going to affect people differently. One person might be knocked out in 30 seconds, one might be knocked out in a minute, and one might be knocked out in three minutes. I mean, look, I'm not a chemist, so I don't know how quickly these drugs would act in, in someone's system. But if, you know, if you're mixing drugs, which people say never to do, especially these type of drugs, I would imagine it'd be pretty fast acting, one would imagine. So the, the fact that this guy wants to come in and say, well, maybe she could have done it in three minutes, I'm not buying. I'm not buying that at all. There is no way that she could have been able, after ingesting that amount of drugs, to tie herself up. There was absolutely nothing at the crime scene to indicate that she had used any form of syringe or she had used any drinking device or anything of that nature. The morphine wouldn't have taken effect for, say, 15 minutes, half an hour. Uh, the knot specialist who came in and recreated the same type of knots and the way she was tied up, it took him three minutes. So basically, if she took the drugs at the same time, she would have had about 15 minutes in order to tie herself up. Cindy was the type of person, was a very proud person. If she wanted to commit suicide, she would take her dog, dress herself up properly, lay on the bed, and that's how she would commit suicide. Not the way she was found in that horrible place. The inquest concluded on May 25th of 1990, exactly one year after Cindy had disappeared. After deliberations, the jury was unable to determine whether her cause of death was suicide, homicide, or accidental. It was ultimately ruled that Cindy had died of an unknown event, and the case was officially closed. To this day, no one has ever been charged with her murder, and it remains unsolved. The police did not investigate the possibility of homicide, of somebody murdering her, but zeroed in on trying to prove that she committed suicide. And I'm very angry uh, with the ineptitude, the bungling, by those who are responsible to protect our citizens and to do something about, uh, first of all, preventing a death like this, and secondly, when it does occur, not investigating it properly. They had 24-hour surveillance on our house for like days on end with up to 14 officers, but never when surveillance was on her house, never any, any event would happen. As soon as surveillance was taken off, of course, then she'd get another incident that happened. When the police were watching the house, we would say to them, well, you know, if it's somebody doing that, sure as heck he knows you're there. And of course, nobody will do anything while you're sitting there and watching. I think one of the things that she found most difficult was that people didn't believe her. She was always doubted. She knew she was doubted, and that was what slowly drove her crazy, the fact that she wasn't believed. There was no indication in all of the time that I saw her, and I saw her not just in conversational states, I saw her in deep hypnotic states as well. Uh, there was never any evidence that there, was another, there are other personalities there. So the psychiatrists that were speculating about that were looking for an explanation for things that can't be explained, and who can argue against uh, multiple personality disorder. There was never any evidence whatsoever in our relation with our daughter that there was anything but the personality that we knew. And we saw her under many circumstances, many different times. There's just no question that she was not mentally ill. So I think that one of the defense mechanisms that people have is denial. 
And I think it must be very hard for them to believe that, you know, they were taken into the, drawn into this whole thing year after year after year, and that it was all delusional. And you can feel sympathy for the family and friends and colleagues who were all close to her and trying to help her and protect her. And, well, they went through hell themselves. If we could only find out what really happened, I think it would be easier on us. Right now, we just wonder what happened, what happened. I can see her in front of me. I hear her laughter, the fun we had. I... Uh, you know, I still find it hard to believe she's not there. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on unanswered questions the falling soldier full title loyalist militant man and the moment of death Ciro muriano september 5th of 1936 is a black and white photograph by robert kappa claimed to have been taken on saturday september 5th of 1936 